Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. This podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the internet's leading provider of spoken word entertainment. Get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa for details. Hello and welcome to Starship Sofa's Oral Delights on a Wednesday night. I hope everyone is fine and dandy. We have a fine show tonight, so I hope you will join me and enjoy what's on offer. First off... Staying the Course by Mark Rich The news brings us this, that we have not done enough, entire groups vanishing beneath the pressures we brought to bear. The last typist died today in Loma Linda. The fungal infections encouraged by global warming have wiped out typists everywhere, and the last one in a literary zoo here in the sunny west succumbed to infection this morning. We thought it was only the frogs. Strange regional die-outs of librarians, booksellers, even pencil manufacturers have caused some of us to question our present direction. We will stay the course, says the chapter leader of Local Idiots Number 1. We must not flinch in the face of lack of progress. And, of course, it is in the nature of intelligent creatures to have no choice in the matter. Appeared in Asimov's October-November 2007. Don't forget, copyright is Mark Rich. Thank you, Mark, for that. Much appreciated. And Diane... As ever, thank you so much. Don't forget links to Diane's work. Actually, check out a CD and Mark Rich's site on our website. So now we get on to the flash fiction. And today's flash fiction comes from Vonda N. McIntyre. A little bit about Vonda. She writes science fiction. Her work has won the Nebula three times. She has received the Nebula nomination for her recent story, Little Faces. And she was not sorry to lose the two hearts by Peter S. Beagle. In the summer of 2007, she attended the Launchpad Astronomy Workshop, run by SF writer and professor of astronomy Mike Brotherton. A modest proposal appeared in the science journal Nature. Considering the thousands of hours I spent reading Nature during my misspent youth as a grad student, she says, I think it is the least they can do to publish one of my stories. In fact, they are publishing another misprint sometime this year. It's much funnier than Modest Proposal. So, there you go. I hope you enjoy this tale. A Modest Proposal for the Perfection of Nature by Vondain McIntyre Narrated by Amy H. Sturgis The crop grows like endless golden silk. Wave after wave rushes across plains, between mountains, 
through valleys in a tsunami of light. Its harvest is perfection. It fills the nutritional needs of every human being. It adapts to our tongues, creating the taste, texture, and satisfaction of comfort food or dessert, crisp vegetables or icy lemonade, sea cucumber or big game. It's the pinnacle of the genetic engineer's art. It's the last and only living member of the plant kingdom on Earth. Solar cells cover slopes too steep and peaks too high for the monoculture. The solar arrays flow in long, wide swaths of glass, gleaming with a subtle iridescence, collecting sunlight. Our civilization never runs short of power. The flood of grain drowns marsh and desert, forest and plain, bird and beast and insect. Land must serve to produce the crop. Creatures only nibble and trample and damage it, diverting resources from the service of human beings. Even the immortality of rats and cockroaches has failed. The grain stops at the ocean's beach. No rivers muddy the sea's surface or break the shoreline. The grain and the cities require fresh water and divert it before it wastes itself in the sea. The tides wash up and back, smoothing the clean silver sand, leaving it bare of tangled seaweed, of foraging seabirds or burrowing clams, of the brown organic froth that dirtied it in earlier times. Now and then the waves erase a line of human footprints, but these are very rare. The air is clean of any bite of iodine, any hint of pollution or decay. The sea undulates, blue and green, clear as new glass. Sunlight shimmers on its surface and dapples the bare sea floor. Underwater turbines cast shadows on the sand. The tides power the turbines, tapping the force of gravity. Far from shore, where its colonies will not interrupt the vista of clear water. A single species of cyanobacterium photosynthesizes near the surface, pumping oxygen into the crystalline air, controlling the level of carbon dioxide. Its design copes easily with the increasing saltiness of the sea. Except for the cyanobacteria, the ocean's cacophony of microscopic organisms has followed redwoods, mammoths, and hallucinogenia into extinction. The krill are gone. Krill would be of as little use to people as sharks and seabirds, fish or jellyfish, seashells or whales. They are all gone too. The water deepens beyond the reach of light. The continental shelf ends in a precipice, dropping off into darkness. On the sea floor, the glass-laced shells of diatoms lie clean and dead, slowly settling. In a moment of geologic time, they will form white limestone. In the deepest trenches, black smokers gush scalding chemical soup. Machines sense the vents of heat, swim to them, and settle over them to trap the energy of the center of the earth. Nothing remains for the sustenance and evolution of primordial life in these extraordinary environments. The strange creatures who lived there and died were never any use to human beings. All the resources of sea and land. Serve our needs. Cities of alabaster and adamantine grace the crests of mountains and span the flow of rivers. 
The city's people live rich, full lives, long and healthy, free of disease. We are well fed. We have interesting, challenging occupations and plenty of time for leisure, family, and virtual reality. We can experience any adventure from wilderness to exotic ritual without the expense, trouble, or danger of travel. We can experience any adventure that ever happened, any adventure anyone can imagine. The virtual experience matches reality or invention in every way: sight, sound, smell, touch, and movement. Our civilization pulses with vitality. We have unlimited opportunity of thought, of achievement, of freedom, and of the pursuit of happiness. Whatever we require, human ingenuity can invent and provide. And if, in some unlikely but imaginable future, we should wish to recreate any organism, the means to do so exist. DNA sequences, RNA sequences, are easy to write down and archive. There is no need to store messy biological material, either tough and persistent DNA or fragile and degradable RNA. We are magnanimous. We have preserved the blueprints for everything, even parasites and pathogens. No one has bothered to recreate an organism in a very long time. We have considered the question long and hard, and we have made our decision. No creation of nature has an inherent right to exist, independent of our need. We have perfected nature, for we are its masters. The end. There you go. Don't forget, copyright is Vonda N. McIntyre. So, Vonda, thank you so much for that. Please look out for more works by Vonda coming soon. And who can miss those tones of our fantastic Amy H. Sturgis? Amy, thank you so much. Please pop over to Amy's site and Vonda's site. Links will be there on the website. So today's Oral Delights podcast is brought to you by Audible.com, the leading provider in spoken word entertainment. Audible has, get this, over 35,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded and played back anywhere, just like Starship Sofa. Log on to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. Again, go to audiblepodcast.com com slash sofa for your free audiobook and if anyone's been over there and had a look and checked out audible's site you will see that they have just added uh, hugo or nebula are winning classics and guess who vonda n mcintyre blackstone audio is in there the moon and the sun also by vonda n mcintyre dream snake you can find moving mars by greg bear published by brilliance audio that's in audible.com. And finally, Anne McCaffrey fans just been added more than a dozen of her titles. So please go check out audiblepodcast.com slash sofa. Links on the main page. Now we come to a section that is rapidly becoming one of the main highlights of Oral Delights. And it just so happens now I've got a, I've got a backlog of fact articles to get published. 
it's just the way they come, you know, swings and roundabouts, and sometimes you're going to have no fact articles. Some weeks I've got a number lined up there, but... But I guess that's the way it goes. Anyway, today we have, for all you budding writers out there, we have a new monthly article starting by Terry Edge. Terry Edge is 20 years in the writing game and has been through all the pitfalls you are likely to go through. So once a month, thereabouts, you know, join Terry and he was gonna he will take you through all this process of learning to write. I wish I had had Terry there when I was dabbling in it. So, I'll let Terry tell you all about it. Hello, I'm TD Edge, and today I'm going to talk about point of view, because this is one of the most difficult of areas for writers, and for reasons that should become obvious, one that doesn't lend itself easily to just taking a chance and hoping no one will notice if you get it wrong. But before I go on, here's an alternative view. I once sat on a panel at a convention with a famous and successful author. And I said at one point that new writers don't get enough training. He said, writers don't need training, they just need to write a good book. So there you are then. If he was doing this article, he would not have had my problem of having to cut out tons of stuff. He'd have just said, hi, I'm X. Go write a good book. Thank you very much and good night. But if you're not someone who can simply lay down a great book as easy as a free-range chicken with a WD-40 addiction... I hope this article and any others that may follow will give you some understandings to help you write that great book or that great short story. I have over 20 years experience as an editor, I've tutored creative writing courses for local authorities and the Open College of the Arts, and just about everything I've learned has been the hard, unlubricated way, because, well, I'm stubborn and thick-skinned. So, I had lunch with Gary the other day. He's like a lot of blokes. When it's finally my turn to say something, his attention wanders around the room, taking in the food other people are eating, the waitress's legs, his own wristwatch. Not checking the time, he just finds it more interesting than me. So I have to talk louder, faster, and above all make sure whatever I say catches his attention. Well, actually I don't. I just say, Oi, Gaz, listen up, or I'm out of here. Then he'll listen, or pretend to because he has at least a degree of vested interest. I mean, without me, he'd look pretty pervy checking out the waitress for one thing. When I'm not trying to catch and hold Gary's attention, I'm trying to reel in total strangers to read my stories. People who have no vested interest in me, who will only stick around if everything I say to them is more interesting than their own wristwatches. But how will I know that? When I was young, I didn't used to sing in my bedroom. I wrote... If I'd sung, believe me, I'd have received plenty of instant feedback from my parents, most of which would have been along the lines of, shut up and get some lessons, but don't expect us to pay. As it was, I emerged from my bedroom, at age 30, with a novel which, given the only feedback I'd received was, well at least it keeps him quiet. I was convinced it was perfect. The first editor whose attention I managed to catch didn't, however, agree, And although she did eventually publish it, I had to first go through the process of learning to do consciously what I thought I could already do naturally, but actually couldn't. Basically, point of view closes the gap between the reader and what's happening in the story. It's the means by which the reader gets that sense of wonder at being part of a magical or gritty or action-packed story. But here's the thing. Before you can give them the wonder, 
you have to win the power struggle for their attention. Now at this point we need to take a lightning and largely unfactual trip through the history of point of view of getting the audience's attention. In ancient times people would gather around the village fire with their unpopped corn and warm beer ready for a story. Once upon a time, the storyteller would begin, knowing his first job was to get their attention. And he'd probably do this by making some compelling statement about his story, that it featured dragons, knights and kings, or spaceships. His next job was to draw them into the story, and he'd do that by using his body language and vocal range, of course, but also by providing analogies they could relate to and even by bringing them in as minor characters into the story. He was their point of view, and he needed to use his power as a storyteller to narrow the gap between his audience and the wonder of his story. When the novel was invented, this narrator's point of view was often still used. Now we call it the omniscient point of view, which means knows everything. The author knows everything, so he can simply tell his readers what everyone in his story is thinking, feeling and planning to do. Which is one reason many people find it hard to get into old novels. How did people get into them back then? Well, maybe they didn't so much. Maybe their own lives were so full of emotion, death, pain and hardship that they just wanted to escape into the author's care and have him tell them a story. Or perhaps they were mostly toffs anyway who preferred to keep real life like the peasants at arm's length. Whatever the reason, modern people like to get inside a story's characters direct. They don't want some puffed up egotistical writer getting in the way, which means us puffed up egotistical writers have to learn how to disguise our puffed upiness. And so we come to the two main forms of point of view used today, first person and third person. First person is essentially I, the main character as narrator. This is an obvious choice for getting in close to the emotions and thoughts of the main character, but you need to be wary. First person, it's very easy for the author to tell the reader too much. First person can become very chatty, basically. It's also limited by nature to the viewpoint character. There are a lot of modern novels, Chicklet, Buffy Clones, Private Investigator Fedora and Cigarette Stuff, that think it's clever to have the main character chunter on in a realistic way. But it isn't. It's boring. The most common point of view used in modern written fiction is third person, sometimes called third person limited or limited omniscient, which means although the author has the ability to move around the heads of any of his characters, he chooses mostly not to, but to restrict himself to just the one head. Why would he do this? Well, so the power of the story is concentrated in one place, and the reader can invest all his attention, a spoonful of his soul, into one fictional character. After all, in the story of our own individual lives, we never really leave our point of view. Even after several pints of old buttocks 7.5% astral projection celebration ale. I know, I've tried. Third person then has the advantage of first person in that it concentrates the story in one emotional source, but also allows the writer to move outside the strict limitations of his main character's point of view. However... What he needs to avoid are point-of-view violations, of which there's basically two kinds, those that occur between the characters and those that appear in the narrative. For example, I just finished reading a thriller by a blockbuster author and one of the reasons it didn't grab me 
was that in most scenes she would shift just briefly and usually only once out of the main character's point of view into the secondary characters and then slip back again. Now this has the same effect on the reading flow as hitting an unexpected road bump at 60 miles an hour. Your bowels hit the roof, your teeth fly through the windshield and you generally feel pretty angry that the author didn't post a sign by the side of the plot to say Warning! Point of view switch ahead! Why did she do this? To be honest, I don't think she even noticed. She needed to show the reader what was going on in the secondary character's head. So just jumped into it for a minute, rather than use good writing to have the main character infer it from the other's reactions and dialogue. And yes, most readers probably wouldn't consciously notice, but they will wonder why their teeth are missing, and sooner or later realise it was the author's fault and never again trust him with the driving. The other kind of point of view violation is like the one I made earlier when I listed Spaceship as something an ancient storyteller might include in his stories. Him being the point of view character, if you remember. Now, if you've set a story in the past, you can't use analogies and similes that refer to things that didn't exist back then. Why not? The author knows about them, doesn't she? Yes, but remember she isn't a character in the story. It's written in third or first person point of view. So as soon as she introduces something that her characters couldn't possibly know about, she puts herself into the story. Again, a reader might not consciously notice this, but they will smell a rat, or rather a puffed-up egotistical writer. Now, how do you choose your point-of-view character? Well, that could be a series in itself. But here's a story of how it's probably best not to trust a blind instinct, or worse still, self-love. My first two young adult books featured two friends, Tom and Taff. Taff was a teenage mastermind, a brilliant manipulator of others and something of a Brian Clough figure as captain of the youth club football team. Brian Clough, by the way, was a highly successful football manager and possessor of a decidedly fixed point of view. He once said, for example, that if one of his players had a problem, he was free to go see Clough in his office where they would discuss the matter for 20 minutes before deciding that Clough was right. But instead of Taff, I chose Tom as the first-person, point-of-view character. Tom was more typical of an intelligent middle-class teenager possessing all the angsty, liberal, wishy-washy contradictions that meant he always had difficult decisions to make, which allowed the reader to sit comfortably in his head and enjoy Taff's dark machinations at a safe distance. Now, I could say I'd chosen Tom for point-of-view character because I realised he was the one more likely to change and therefore the one readers would most empathise with. But I didn't. I chose Tom because he was three quarters me. Anyway, I wrote the third book in the series, then went to a meeting with my two editors about it. They said they had a major problem. There wasn't enough taff. This was true. The old rascal didn't appear until near the end of the story. But, I said to them, Tom's the more interesting character of the two. They shared a pitying look, then one of them said, No! Taffy's by far the most interesting. By the way, this is also a story about how you should never listen to those idiots who insist there are no rules in writing. These are the same people who throw a can of tomatoes unopened into a pan, along with a whole unpeeled onion, a pound of raw beef, then stare at it for an hour wondering why it hasn't turned into a bolognese sauce. I didn't know the rules about how to choose the most suitable point of view character, and it meant I wasted months writing a novel that was unpublishable. The point is, you need to learn and understand the rules before you can forget them, and experiment with at least a chance of producing something that will go down well with a plate of spaghetti. 
So summing up, the writer's job is to close the gap between the reader and the story, specifically with what's happening to the main character. To do that, you have to understand why point of view is important and how it works. The reader will probably not consciously notice when you get point of view right, but they will feel an unbroken chain of wonder from start to finish of your story and respect your integrity as a writer. The thing is, we all get so many rejections because we're trying to write for the market when no one, not even the publishers, really know what the market is. We also have to understand our audience, even if we don't know who they are. We also need to know what any given editor personally likes, even if her likes change according to where the moon happens to be in her birth chart, and how much chocolate she's had before lunch. The only thing we can control is the quality of our work. And yes, it's true that some published writers, even highly successful ones, don't really understand point of view, or are just crap at it. But then they tend to succeed as much by luck as anything. You're welcome to rely on luck, of course, but skill tends to pay off more in the end. Finally, to go back to the question of whether or not a writer needs training, I'll put my cards on the table here. As well as being a creative writing teacher and editor, I also seek out training for my own writing whenever I can. For instance, I attended the six-week full-time Odyssey Fantasy Writers Workshop in New Hampshire, which I can't recommend highly enough for any speculative fiction writer who wants to move their writing on to a degree that would take years otherwise. I've also attended the Milford Science Fiction Writers Workshop, and later this year I'm going to the two-week masterclass in speculative fiction writing in Oregon, taken by Dean Wesley Smith and Christine Catherine Rush. I'll let you know how I get on. By the way, I recently decided to switch from writing children's fiction to science fiction fantasy, which was my first reading love. So I'm now in the rejection game too, while I'm just writing that good book. I think my best rejection so far was from an editor wanting rejected stories for an anthology of rejected stories. He rejected mine, and I'm still not sure if that's a good or bad thing. But I have now just sold my first two stories, which is good because when I bang on to you about the need to keep circulating yours, I can say that it works eventually. So, that's a very short look at Point of View. I'll post this article on my blog site, and if you'd like to comment, please do. Just make sure it's in your point of view. Thank you, and good night. There you go. Terry, you make it so, so simple. Just just like that. <laughs> Terry, that's fantastic. Yes, please keep them coming. I think everybody who's actually dabbling in writing, who wants to kind of get a grasp on things like that, this will be a, a fantastic article. So please, yes, more of the same. Do pop over to Terry Edge's site. Links will be on the, the site. Like I say, you can comment on there or you can comment in the forums. That would be fantastic. Moving on now, we come to the main part of the Oral Delights Night, the main fiction. This story is by probably one of the top leading short science fiction writers out there today, Robert Reed. Just give you a little brief on Robert Reed. Born in Omaha, Nebraska on 9th of October 1956. attending Benson High there and then Nebraska Wesleyan University in Lincoln. I'll have I'm getting that wrong. <laughs> where he received a B.S. in biology in 1987. Since winning the first L. Ron Hubbard Writers of the Future contest in 1986 under the pen name Robert Toulousein, 
And again, sorry Bob got that wrong. And being a finalist for the John W. Cameron Award for Best New Writer in 1987, he has had 140 shorter works published in a variety of magazines and anthologies. And I dropped Bob an email just to say what's, um, what's up and what's going on. And he says, his only news is that he is attending the Worldcon in Denver in a few weeks. My only appearance in the Publicity SF World this year. I'll be signing and sitting quietly on panels and I hope my high altitude fans can come and see me. So there you go. And this story is fantastic. <laughs> She wakes me at five before five in the morning, coming into the darkened bedroom with tags clinking and claws skating across the old oak floor, and then she uses a soft whine that nobody else will hear. I sit up and pull myself to the end of the bed, dressing in long pants and new walking shoes. The old shoes weren't helping my balky arch and Achilles. And then I stop at the bathroom before pulling a warm jacket from the front closet, My dog keeps close track of my progress. In her step and the big eyes is enthusiasm and single-minded focus. At the side door, I tell her to sit and hold still, please. And in the dark, I fasten the steel pinch collar and six-foot leash around a neck that has grown alarmingly thin. Any more our walks are pleasant, even peaceful events. No more hard tugging or challenging other dogs. A little after five in the morning, early in March, the world is black and quiet beneath a cold, clear sky. Venus is brilliant, the moon cut thin. Crossing the empty four-lane road to the park, we move south past the soccer field, and then west, and then south again on a narrow, asphalt sidewalk. A hundred dogs pass this ground daily. The city has leash laws, and I've always obeyed them. But the clean-up laws are new, and only a fraction of the dog walkers carry plastic sacks and flashlights. Where my dog has pooped for 13 years, she poops now, and I kneel to stare at what she has done, convincing myself that the stool is reasonably firm, if exceptionally fragrant. A good beginning to our day. We continue south to a set of white wooden stairs. She doesn't like stairs anymore, but she climbs them easily enough. Then we come back again on the wide bike path, a favorite stretch of hers. In the spring, rabbits will nest in the mowed grass, and every year she will find one or several little holes stuffed with tiny half-formed bunnies. On this particular morning, nothing is caught and killed. An older man and his German shepherd pass us on the sidewalk below. Tony is a deep-voiced gentleman, who usually waves from a distance and chats when we're close. He loves to see Roxy bounce about, and she very much likes him. But in the darkness he doesn't notice us, and I'm not in the mood to shout. He moves ahead and crosses the four-lane road, and when we reach that place, Roxy pauses, smelling where her friend has just been, and leaking a sorry little whine. Home again, I pill my dog. She takes Proin to control bedwetting, plus half a metro nidazole to fight diarrhea. She used to take a full metro, but there was an endless night a few weeks ago when she couldn't rest, not indoors or out. She barked at nothing, which is very strange for her, 
Maybe a high-pitched sound was driving her mad, but our vet warned that she could have a tendency toward seizures, and the metro can increase their likelihood in severity, which is why I pulled her back to just half a pill in the morning. I packed the medicine into a handful of canned dog food, stinky and prepared with the senior canine in mind. She waits eagerly and gobbles up the treat in a bite, happily licking the linoleum where I dropped it, relishing that final taste. Before six in the morning, I pour orange juice and go down to my basement office. My PC boots up without incident. I discover a fair amount of email, none of it important. Then I start jumping between sites that offer a good look at science and world events. Sky and Telescope has a tiny article about an asteroid of uncertain size and imprecise orbit. But after a couple of nights of observation, early estimates describe an object that might be a kilometer in diameter, and in another two years it seems that this intruder will pass close enough to Earth, bringing with it a one in six thousand chance of an impact. But that figure won't hold up, promises one astronomer. This happens all the time. Once we get more data, this danger is sure to evaporate to nothing. My future wife was a reporter for the Omaha newspaper. I knew her because in those days a lot of my friends were reporters. On a sultry summer evening, she and I went to the same Fourth of July party, and over the smell of gunpowder, Leslie mentioned that she'd recently bought a husky puppy. Grinning, I admitted that I'd always been intrigued by sled dogs. You should come meet Roxy sometime, she said. Why Roxy, I asked. Foxy Roxy, she explained. She's a red husky. To me, she sort of looks like an enormous fox. Her dog was brownish red and white, with a dark red mask across her narrow face, accenting her soulful blue eyes. Leslie wasn't home when I first visited, but her dog was in the backyard, absolutely thrilled to meet me. Huskies are the worst guard dogs in the world. Roxy was four or five months old with a short coat and a big, long-legged frame. Sitting behind the chain-link fence, she licked the salt off my offered fingers, and then she hunkered down low, feigning submission. But her human was elsewhere, and I didn't want the responsibility of opening gates and possibly letting this wolfish puppy escape. So I walked away, triggering a string of plaintive wails that caused people for a mile in every direction to ask, now who's torturing that poor, miserable creature? Leslie and I started dating in late October, but the courtship always had the competitive triangular feel to it. My new girlfriend worked long hours and drove a two-hour commute to and from Omaha. She didn't have enough time for a hyperactive puppy. Feeling sorry for both of them, I would drop by to tease her dog with brief affections. Or, if I stayed the night, I'd get up at some brutally early hour, before seven o'clock some mornings, and dripping with fatigue, I'd join the two of them on a jaunt through the neighborhood and park and back again. In those days, Roxy lived outside as much as she lived in, but the backyard gate proved inadequate. Using her nose, she would easily flip the latch up and out of the way. Tying the latch only bought a few more days of security. Leaping was easy work, and a four-foot chain-link fence was no barrier at all. A series of ropes and lightweight chains were used and discarded. Finally, Leslie went to a farm supply store and bought a steel chain strong enough to yank cars out of ditches. Years later, a friend from Alaska visited, and I asked sheepishly if our chain was overkill. 
No, it was pretty standard for sled dogs, she conceded. Then she told me what I already knew. These animals love to run. One morning, somebody's dog was barking, and Leslie asked me to make sure it wasn't hers. Peering out the dining room window, I found a beautiful red and white husky dancing on the patio, happy as can be. Not your dog, I told my girlfriend. Even burdened with the heavy chain, Roxy had killed a squirrel. And now she was happily flinging the corpse into the air and catching it again. The game was delicious fun until the limp squirrel fell out of reach. And then the wailing began. I got dressed and found a shovel in the garage. And when I picked up her prize by its tail, the dog leapt happily. Oh, I was saving her day. But with the first spade of earth, she saw my betrayal for what it was. And the wailing grew exponentially. Two nights later, Leslie called for help. Again, her dog had killed an animal. She didn't know what kind. Despite being a farmer's kid, Leslie has an exceptionally weak stomach, and she didn't want to look too closely. But if I could stop over and take care of the situation... It was late, and I was very tired. But I stopped by the next afternoon, when no humans were home. A half-grown possum was baking in the sun. Using my growing puddle of wisdom, I gave my girlfriend's dog a quick walk and put her inside before burying the bloated body. Then I let Roxy back out on her chain, and she hurried to the spot where the possum had been, sniffing and digging, and then flinging herself down on her back to roll on the ripe, wondrous ground. After a year of dating, I moved in with both of them, and that spring, Leslie and I dug a pond below the patio, that's where we found the opossum's grave. Rot and time had eaten the flesh from the skull, and I put the prize in a little jar that I set on a shelf in the spare bedroom that had become my office. After several days, the new asteroid surfaces again on the web, this time wearing an official designation. The bolide is found to be exceptionally dark, lending evidence that this could be a short-term comet with most of its volatiles bled away. A tiny albedo means it must be larger than it appears in the images. Two black kilometers across, and maybe more. As promised, the 1 in 6,000 chance of an impact has been discarded. Extra data allow astronomers to plot a lovely elliptical orbit that reaches out past Saturn and then dives inside the Earth's orbit. Calculations are still in flux, I read online. If the object starts to act like a comet... Watery fountains and gaseous vents will slow it down or speed it up, depending on chaotic factors. These are complications that will mean much or nothing. But for the moment, the odds of an impact with Earth have shifted by a factor of 20. One in 300, I read at the Science Daily site. In other words, it is easier to fill an inside straight in poker, and that the object's trajectory makes any substantial change the chance of an impact will probably, probably, drop to one in infinity. I grew up with black Labradors in the house. They were docile animals, a little foolish, but always good-hearted, and each one began his day by asking, how can I make my owner proud of me? No husky thinks in those subservient, dim-witted terms. Leslie grew up on a farm full of dogs and cats, but those pets lived outdoors, because of that, and because she wasn't home during the day, 
she had limited success housebreaking Roxy. Of course, I'd like to tell myself that once I had moved in, the chaos turned to discipline. But the truth is more complex, less edifying business. To make certain our dog was drained in the morning, I walked her. Since I worked at home, taking Roxy outside for the midday pee was easily done, and when my girlfriend was tired in the evening, I would throw a 30-foot lead on the beast and take her to the park and back again. But who trained who is a valid question. The evening walk came after the human dinner. When I put down the fork, the dog would begin to whine and leap, sometimes poking me in the gut with her paw. Disciplining her was endless work, and often futile. She was too quick to grab, too graceful to corral. One night, watching some favorite TV show, I got a little too clever and lured her upstairs. Then after a few words about what a spoiled bitch she was, I shut the door between us, and after a few seconds of loud thumping, the house went quiet. At the first commercial break, I peeked through the door to find my dog sitting in the kitchen, waiting patiently. Good girl, I said, and as a reward I let her come downstairs. She sat at my feet, as patient as I had ever seen her act, sometimes glancing my way with an expression full of meanings that I couldn't quite read. When I went upstairs again, I discovered what she had done. In my office, on the throw rug, she had emptied her bladder. Here was a message. And the lesson was learned. And after that, our walks were a priority, and I tried to avoid treating her like inconvenient luggage. The dead comet surfaces in newspaper articles and on television. Its soulless official designation has been replaced by Shelby, which happens to be the off-the-cuff name given to it by its discoverers. The odds of an impact are fluctuating between 1 in 300 and 1 in 1,000, depending on the expert being quoted. But even the most alarming voice sounds calm, particularly when he or she repeats the undeniable truth. The bolide is a long ways out and still traveling toward the sun. Any day now, Shelby will start to vent, and its orbit will shift some significant distance. Meanwhile, what has been an unnaturally mild winter ends with a single heavy snow. Fifteen wet inches fall in less than a day. Cars wear white pillars. The warm earth melts the first several inches. But what remains is impressive. With my four-year-old daughter's help, I build a snowman in the front yard. My first snowman in forty years. And Roxy appreciates the snow, though she can't leap into those places that aren't plowed or shoveled. For several days, our walks are limited to the plowed streets, and it takes persistence and some coaxing before she finds a place worthy of her poop. I still run with her on the cool days. For several years, we haven't gone farther than a mile. There is one course she accepts without complaint, knowing the turnaround point to the inch. One blustery afternoon, when the last snow has melted, I take her into a stand of old pines growing beside the park's nine-hole golf course, and then I lure her past that point, tricking her into running a course that is slightly longer than normal. Together, we maintain a comfortable nine-minute gait, and at the one-mile mark, almost exactly, she begins to limp. She looks pained and pitiful, right up to the moment when we start to walk home, and then her limp vanishes as quickly as it appeared. A few days later, she wakes me at 4.30 in the morning. Her walk is uneventful. 
but I can't relax when I come home. Online, I jump to the new scientist site, reading that somebody has uncovered photographic plates taken several decades ago. These old images show Shelby moping along near its perigee, a forgotten speck moving just outside Venus's orbit. Astronomers now have fresh data to plug into their equations, refining their predictions. And more important, they don't see any evidence of a coma or tail. During its last fiery summer, this old comet didn't spill any significant volatiles. Worse still, between then and now, our bolide has been moving along an exceptionally predictable line. Overnight, the odds of an impact with Earth have shifted, jumping from a comforting 1 in 300 at their worst to a one miserable chance in 13. I used to be a semi-fast runner, and except in summer, Roxy was good for a six or eight mile adventure. In late fall and winter, when temperatures dipped to a bearable chill, we would run 12 miles at a shot or farther. She adored the snow. I think she knew every course by heart, even when drifts obscured the trails. We ran with human friends, and she always worked harder around new people, trying to impress them. But the real fun was to get out and smell the smells, and she relished her chances to pee against fresh trees and important fences. Roxy often lifted one hind leg like a boy dog would, but better than that, she occasionally did the canine equivalent of a handstand, throwing her piss high to fool strange dogs into thinking what a big bad bitch was here. And she was exceptionally competitive. When we saw another dog up ahead, or human runners, or even a slow cyclist, it was critically important to put on a sprint and pass your opponent. And not only pass them, but to look back at them too, laughing happily, flashing the canine equivalent of a beat-your-ass grin. People who know me, friends and family, and even passing acquaintances, start to ask, what do you think the real odds are? Of impact, they mean. Sad to say, being a science fiction writer doesn't give a person special knowledge. It should, but it doesn't. All I can offer is the standard figure, 1 in 13. The most likely scenario is that Shelby will cross the Earth's orbit at a distance far closer to us than we are to the moon. If there is a collision, it will happen in a little less than two years. On March 11th, at approximately 3.45 a.m. local time, and because of the orbital dynamics, if the object does strike, it will plunge down somewhere in the northern hemisphere. But, like the talking heads on television, I remind my audience that these numbers are certain to change. In mid-April, I'm a guest at a little SF convention held at one of our state colleges. And going in, I imagine an event where people talk openly about murderous asteroids and comets. But I keep forgetting that most fans today read nothing but fantasy and media tie-in books. They don't want to invest much breath in what is a very depressing subject. And the rest of us, including me, I discover, have convinced ourselves that in the end, nothing will come of this. I enjoy the convention. Best of all, I relish the change in routine. I don't have a dog to listen for in the wee hours. I can sleep all the way to a lazy 7.30 if I want. Though I can't manage the trick, since my body isn't geared for so much leisure. On Monday morning, I retrieve my dog from the kennel. 
As always, Roxy gives me a quick hello before heading for the car. Her poop has been fine, I learn, and she's eaten every pill and every bite of food that I brought for her. The week turns summery warm. On Thursday morning at o'clock, I jump awake when Roxy begins to lick herself. She isn't licking her privates, but instead she is obsessively wetting down her paws and legs, working hard until she has to stop to pant. Then she climbs to her feet and gets a drink from the toilet, and then returns to the bedroom to lick her legs some more. I could push her into the hall and shut the door, but that would only make her whine. So I lie awake for two or three hours, thinking about work. I play with unfinished stories. I dance with a novel that still hasn't sold. And when I don't have anything else to consider, I think about Shelby. If this is the murderer of human civilization, doesn't the bastard deserve a better name? By four in the morning, I'm exhausted and anxious. Shutting the windows, I turn on the air conditioning. The cool air doesn't seem to help my dog but at least the noise covers up the sounds of licking, and by 4.30 I manage to drift in sleep. Fifteen minutes of dreamy slumber enjoyed before Roxy comes to the foot of the bed and starts to whine. One winter, my dog took an extraordinary interest in one portion of a local bike path. The path dove under a bridge. That bridge had three tunnels. The pedestrian tunnel was narrow and dark, Beside it was a wider tunnel where a peaceful stream flowed through, and on the far side was a second equally wide tunnel meant for the overflow during high water. I usually gave Roxy a chance to drink, but suddenly she got it into her head that we needed to investigate the far tunnel. She would stand in the freezing creek looking back at me with a questioning insistence. This was important. This mattered. We really need to cross over here, she was telling me. But there was no way to convince me to wade through shin-deep water, only to reach an empty tunnel floored with packed clay and trash. More than most humans, my dog is woven into her world. Drop a cardboard box anywhere near the bike path, and she will leap and woof until she's convinced that the new object isn't dangerous. The same can be true for a kid's bike left in a front yard or a snowman that wasn't there yesterday. One evening years ago, Leslie and I were walking the dog together. One of our neighbors had been enjoying too much partying that night, and his wife had refused to let him inside. So he lied down on the front walk and fell asleep. At a glance, Roxy knew this was unusual. Somebody needed to be alerted. She began to bark and whine, and then dance, very much troubled by the fact that we were dragging her away from what was clearly somebody in distress. She often notices details that the observant rider beside her has completely missed. One calm, cool afternoon, Roxy and I were running on a bike path when she suddenly, inexplicably went mad, running circles around me while staring up at the sky, her blue eyes huge and terrified. I looked up, and ugly me, I laughed. Floating directly above our heads was an enormous white spiral. It looked ominous, yes, to Roxy, this apparition must have been ready to drop on us, which was why we broke into a hard sprint. Off in the distance, a little biplane was spitting out random letters. A skywriter was practicing his trade. I was breathless and laughing, my strides pulled long by the panic tugs. But the wind happened to be out of the north, and since we were racing south, 
The spiral hovered above us for another half-mile before the trail mercifully bent westward, allowing us to escape, though I noticed that she never stopped watching the busy plain, having wisely decided that it must be to blame for this travesty of nature. Roxy often knew what I didn't know, but when she tried to coax me into the mysterious tunnel, I ignored her. You're not the only stubborn creature in the family, I warned. Then the weather grew warm, and a couple of local kids went exploring. In the tunnel was the body of a teenager, a young man who had been buried in a shallow grave. Police were summoned, and for a week the underpass was cordoned off. Piles of excavated earth were left in the stream bed, and when we could run through again, Roxy would stop and shamelessly sniff at the dirt, burying her nose in the ripest parts, every breath telling her stories about what was still, judging by her interest, vividly real. As it happened, the dead boy had vanished months ago from a group home for troubled youth. His two best friends in the world were arrested. It came out that there had been a fight over cigarettes. One boy confessed to being present at the murder, but he swore the other fellow had bashed in their buddy's skull. With no other witnesses and only sketchy forensics, the state had to give a free pass in exchange for a testimony. But then at trial, the boy recanted his story. In the end, a brutal crime was committed, and nobody went to prison. And I occasionally have to ask myself, what would have happened if I'd listened to my dog? If we'd crossed that stream, and if I'd let her unearth the grave, would the police, given a fresher trail, have been able to make their case? By week's end, one spent comet has pushed everything else out of the news. Most of a dozen runners gather at the YMCA early Saturday morning, and Shelby is our first topic. I explain what I know about its delicate motion through the sky. I report that the venerable Hubble has spotted what looks like a tiny eruption of gas, probably carbon monoxide from its equator. Will this make any difference? Maybe I admit, and maybe not for the best. On the Torino scale, our enemy presently wears an ominous seven. Ten means doom, and the group rings some comfort in the gulf between those seven and ten. But the Torino scale is misleading. Only rocks and tiny asteroids can earn eights or nines, and the fatal ten won't kick in until a massive object, Shelby for instance, has a 99% chance of impacting on the Earth's face. For the last few days, the published odds of the horrific are hovering around 1 in 11. We're going to have to blow it up, one runner announces. Stuff a thousand nukes on a missile and hit the bastard hard. But that's not going to help, I mention. Why not? I don't respond. But the other runners are listening, and our lone female, a little ex-gymnast, comes up beside me, asking, Why won't bombs work? Small bolides aren't brittle rocks ready to shatter to dust under a single hammer blow. They are usually soft, stubborn rubble piles filled with considerable empty space. It'll be like kicking a snowdrift, I mention. Besides, we don't have a fleet of rockets strong enough to fling hydrogen bombs across the solar system. Even with a crash program, no workable bomb could be launched for months, and without years of lead time, we won't be able to carefully map Shelby's surface before putting down at the best possible location. What we'll have to do is attack it straight on, 
one or several tiny bullets battering one gigantic cannonball. Sure, the rubble pile might break into pieces, but that might turn a near collision into a shotgun blast. Hill-sized chunks raining down on everybody. And even if we are very lucky, if Shelby holds together and we trigger the perfect outgassing, that won't happen until late next year. Which won't leave us any time if we make a mistake then, I remind them. My lecture finished, I discovered that I'm out of breath, my stomach aching, and throat parched. For a long moment, the others say nothing. Then the CPA in our group points out, Ten times out of eleven, Shelby misses us. That is a fair point. And the odds can get better, says an optimistic voice. My voice as it happens. I don't want everyone left as miserable as I feel, which is why I promise one in eleven isn't the final word. My dog isn't comfortable. That afternoon, I'm sitting at my computer, reading about orbital dynamics, and Roxy lies nearby, licking at her paws and feet. I can't stand the sound of it, and when she finally quits, I breathe easier. But she only quits because she's exhausted, and after half an hour nap, she wakes and begins the process over again. My vet's office is closed until Monday. I call the emergency clinic, and the assistant says that it sounds like allergies, which isn't too unexpected with the warm spring weather. She suggests Benadryl, though I don't have any in the house. Or, if I want, I could bring my dog over for an examination. I lead Roxy outside and open the back of my CRV, and she leaps in, but with nothing to spare. It's a five-minute drive to the clinic. I'm the only customer. The veterinarian is a heavy, middle-aged fellow with big hands and a matching voice. He asks if my dog has arthritis. No, I say, and immediately I'm remembering every slow trip up the stairs. Yet she managed to jump into my car, which is impressive for a 13-year-old lady. He tells me that her heart is strong. It shows that she gets plenty of exercise. Then he points out the redness in her eyes, a telltale sign of allergies. He recommends a cortisone shot and pills. The hypodermic needle is only a little smaller than a pool cue, and he injects a bucket of oily goo into her back and both hind legs, leaving her whining, trembling from the stress. Returning to the waiting room, we find a patient in genuine trouble, a little mutt who got into a one-sided fight with a pit bull. Seeing that dog's misery, I feel better. Roxy suddenly looks to be in pretty good shape. The prescription is for 20 tabs of prednisone, and the total bill is nearly $150. But the licking stops immediately, and she sleeps hard until nearly 7 that next morning, waking refreshed and ready to walk. Her pee comes in rivers, but I was warned about that side effect. The watery diarrhea that it rises later is a big surprise. By Monday morning, I call my own vet to ask questions and complain. The pred dosage is quite high, I learn, but I have to wean Roxy off the medication slowly or risk the catastrophic failure of her adrenal gland. For the rest of the week, my sleep is broken, full of dreams and abrupt moments of wakefulness. Someone in the house groans, and I find myself alert and exhausted. And if I can't hear my dog, I start to wonder if she has died. 
It astonishes me how I seem to want that to happen. In the middle of the night, when she whines and demands to go outside, I feel trapped. Nobody else is going to take care of this dog. Leslie claims that Roxy is just getting old, slowing down, but generally happy, and I worry too much about her. But at three in the morning, shaking with fatigue, it isn't worry that I'm feeling. I am angry. I feel trapped. With nothing else to do, I can't help but imagine the days to come when I won't have to get up at all hours, when I won't have to tend to this animal. And it scares me when I realize just how much I am looking forward to this one inevitable end. When Leslie became pregnant, certain people in both of our families worried. We were sharing the house with a wolfish dog, and did we appreciate the risks? That summer, we went out of town on short notice and couldn't get Roxy into her usual kennel, but my mother-in-law offered to take her, promising us that our sled dog would live in air conditioning, safe from the July heat. When we returned to the farm, we discovered Roxy in the yard, chained to a tree, looking miserable. My father-in-law had us sit down in the kitchen, and with urgency he asked if we knew that our dog was vicious. It seemed that everything had been fine until this morning, and then, for no reason, Roxy attacked one of his dogs and killed a cat. This was ominous news, yes. We asked questions, both of us trying to put these incidents into context. What I kept thinking was that Roxy had decided we weren't coming home, and she was trying to establish dominance. Leslie asked if the other dog was hurt. Not too bad, my father-in-law conceded. She's a little stiff is all. Which cat, I wanted to know. He described this sweet little calico that I'd noticed before. Where's the body? Oh, she ran off to die, he reported. Then in the next breath he added, I don't care about the cats. That's not the point. But they're little animals, and your baby is going to be a little animal too. Who knows what that dog might do? Leslie and I were shaken. But when I went outside to rescue the forlorn, thoroughly pissed-off dog, I saw a familiar calico walking beside our car. Going back inside, I pointed out the window and asked, Is that the dead cat? Huh? He responded. Well, I guess she didn't die. And at that point, my best defense was to say, If my dog wanted that cat dead, believe me, she would have killed it. Roxy goes off the pred early, and for the next couple of days she seems fine. She seems perfect. But then the licking resumes. I give her Benadryl, and not just a little taste. Six tablets go inside her, three times the usual dosage. But she continues moving from place to place, licking at her miserable legs. Late on Sunday night, I call the emergency clinic, explaining symptoms and mentioning that I still have half of the original prescription. Ten tabs. Their advice is to feed her one pred to help her through the night, but the effects aren't immediate. I can't sleep with Roxy in this mood, which is why I take refuge in the basement. If she follows me, I decide, at least the white noise of the aquariums will help mask any chaos. But thank goodness my dog leaves me alone. This little vacation lasts until six, an exceptionally late hour, and then... She pees rivers while we slowly, contentedly, 
make our usual one-mile walk. When Jessie was a newborn, we would set her on the floor, on her back, and Roxy would come close to investigate, never quite allowing the tiny hands to grab hold of her. Sometimes she brought our daughter gifts, tennis balls or one of the plastic snowmen with its head chewed off, and she would put the toys at Jessie's feet, waiting for the kick that would start their little game. The violence came later. Teeth and nails inflicted pain, and there were some hard body blows delivered in weak moments. But as I explained to others, I couldn't euthanize the guilty party. She was my daughter, after all, and not even two years old. When we returned from daycare, Roxy always makes a point of greeting Jessie. I rarely get such treatment, which is another way huskies aren't anything like Labradors. She's smart enough and secure enough to take me for granted, and if my dog decides to come when I call her, a huge crapshoot as it is, she usually stops short, forcing me to take the final few steps. "'You're describing a cat!' one lady exclaimed upon hearing our stories. "'A fifty-pound cat, yes, with blue eyes and a curled tail, a graying coat, and a predator's fierce instincts.' My haphazard research into huskies gave me one explanation to their nature. Come summer, the Siberian humans would let their dogs run free. With no work for the animals to do, they could feed themselves on the three-month bounty. Then, with the first snows, the happy survivors would return to camp, ready to pull sleds in exchange for easy food. I can't count all the rabbits Roxy has killed. She has also butchered mice and at least one nest of shrews, and there have been a few birds snapped out of the air. But rabbits are prizes above all others. When she was young, she nabbed a half-grown bunny and happily brought it home. But I refused to let her prize come indoors, and after giving me a long, baleful stare, she ate it whole. And for the rest of the day, there was an extra bounce to her always bouncy step. Over the years, Roxy developed a taste for breadsticks and pizza, Sloppy people and my nephews often found their hands suddenly empty, and when Jessie was in the house, I tried to put an end to everybody's misbehavior. One night, Roxy snatched the bread from my wife's grip, missing her fingers by nothing. My response was abrupt and passionate. I asserted my dominance, and my dog responded by baring her teeth, telling me quite clearly to back off. But I tried to grab her collar anyway, dragging her outside, and when she snapped... A long, sharp canine punctured the meat between my thumb and index finger. After that, both of us were exceptionally careful with one another. More than once, tension would erupt, and I would see my dog willfully holding back. I would do the same, or at least I tried to. One morning, when Roxy picked up a road-killed squirrel, a putrid, half-grown marvel, she looked at me with a wishful expression. I didn't reach for her mouth. But with a calm voice, I warned her that as soon as we were home, I was going to stick a hose in her mouth and flush that ugliness out of there. Maybe she understood. More likely, she remembered when I had done that trick with another edible treasure. Either way, she stopped in front of our driveway and crunched on the carcass, and then she gave me a long smile, letting me smell the rancid wonders riding on her breath. A week later, she was living at the vet's. When I finally retrieved her, I found her lying on her side inside a wire cage, looking depressed and painfully skinny. But when the cage door opened, she sprang out 
evading every reaching hand, trying to leap up on a table where a squawking parrot sat inside its cage. That illness was followed by several months of acting happy and comfortable. Roxy would follow me around the house until I settled, and then she would sleep nearby. She ate well, she pooped quite a lot, and there were a few bouts of diarrhea, but things always resolved themselves within a day or two. Roxy often slept in the exact place where she had bitten me, and sometimes, when she dreamed, her legs would run fast, little woofs leaking out as she chased the most delicious prey. Then one day it occurred to me that I hadn't seen her running in her sleep in some time. My dog sleeps almost constantly now, but with very few dreams. While for me, sleep comes in brief snatches that are filled with the most lucid and awful nightmares. In less than two years, Shelby will reach the Earth. The most likely scenario has the black body dipping below the geosynchronous satellites and then plunging even closer. The space station is in a relatively high orbit, and if it happens to be in the proper position, its crew will be able to watch an irregularly shaped body streaking between them and their home. From a distance, Shelby won't look particularly large or ominous, but the sun will light up its black crust even when North America still lies in darkness, and then, after kissing the atmosphere's upper reaches, it will head back out into space, its orbit nudged slightly by our gravity's sturdy tug. Just as I once predicted, the odds of the worst are continuing to evolve. One in eleven has become a rather worse one in nine. But unless there is a major outgassing event, these numbers won't move much farther, at least for the next year or so. Shelby exists in a strange territory where it's mostly harmless. More often than not, astronomers will decide in the final weeks that it won't hit, and everybody will get up in the wee hours and step outside to watch a dull little star passing overhead. The asteroid will miss us by miles and miles before continuing on its mindless way, following a new orbit that is our big old world's little gift to it. My wife and I discuss what to do if the odds worsen. My mother lives in Yuma during the winter. We could pay a visit then, bringing her granddaughter as well as a few tons of canned goods as gifts. Our four-year-old hears us talking and sees pictures on the news, and she repeats little fragments of what she hears in a mangled form. Yet she is an unapologetic optimist, assuring me, It will be pretty, this meteor thing. We'll go out and watch it. You and me? And Roxy, too. What about Mommy, I ask? She'll be sleeping, Jesse confides, obviously having given this issue some thought. She has to go to work tomorrow, Daddy, remember? One day, coming home from daycare, NPR is giving details about a Mars probe that's being quickly reconfigured. With less than perfect equipment, it is going to be launched early and sent on a near-collision course with Shelby skimming low over its surface while snapping a few thousand pictures that will help us aim a nuke mission that may or may not launch in August or September. We need milk tonight, and pulling up in front of the local grocery store, I turn off the car and listen to the rest of the story before getting out and unbuckling my daughter. A man is walking past, his German shepherd striding beside him. I don't often see Tony during the day and rarely up close, Watching Jesse more than him, I say, we don't cross paths much anymore. 
The man holds his dog leash with both hands. I sense his eyes even as I hold my daughter's hand. This isn't easy, but I thought I should tell him my news. A few years ago, when Tony's original German Shepherd was failing, he would share updates while working through the usual emotions. I explain. Roxy's walking earlier and earlier. She's starting to lose strength, I'm afraid. That's when I look up, staring directly at the man's face. And I honestly don't recognize him. The man says, That's too bad, with a voice I don't know. Tony's voice is thick and hearty, an FM radio voice, while this man has a faint, almost girlish tenor. He is also quite skinny and overly dressed for what isn't a terribly cool afternoon. Are you Tony? I have to ask. He smiles and nods, saying yes. He says, It's the chemo. It does this to me. I feel silly and lost, and I am quite sad. But I'm still vertical, he adds with a ramshackled pride. I wish him all the luck in the world, and then I take my daughter into the store for milk and a little tube of M&M's. A few mornings later, well before five, Roxy stops a few feet short of our usual turnaround point. She gives me one of her meaningful stares, and when she has my undivided attention, she glances at the big white stairs. She isn't tired, at least no more tired than usual, but she tells me that she isn't in the mood to climb those stairs, which is why we turn and start back home again. It is a starry, chill morning, with Venus and the remnants of the moon. I don't know why I'm crying while I walk, but I am, blubbering myself sick, hoping to hell that no other dog walkers come by and see me this way. My hope was to someday invite Roxy to a road race. A small town five miler seemed like the perfect candidate, held in February and named appropriately the Animal Run, but one year proved too warm, while the next winter left me in the mood to run a serious, undistracted race. But eventually, a timely Arctic front arrived, ending any thought of racing, and before bed I told my dog to sleep hard because we had a very busy morning coming. But the cold was even worse than predicted. Digging out from under my blankets, I discovered it was ten below, with a brutal wind sure to cut through any exposed flesh. Being rather fond of my nose, I didn't want to lose it for 15th place in some little survival run. That's why I stayed home, telling myself and my dog that maybe next year would be our year. Except soon after that, Roxy quit running long miles. She told me by various means she wouldn't come when I called. She would feign sleep or a limp. Or if another runner visited the house, she would greet him joyfully and then make a show of diving into the window well, hunkering down in the delicious shade. My wife says it's crazy how much I talk to my dog. Leslie hears my end of the conversation, and with a palpable tension she'll ask, How do you know that's what she wants? The eyes, the body. Everything about this dog is talking, can't you see? Not at all, no. For more than a year, Roxy would run nothing but little, lazy day runs. Then, on an autumn afternoon, while I was dressing in the basement, she suddenly came to the side door and gave me a long look. When I returned the stair, she glanced up at the leashes hanging from the hook on the wall. No, hon, I said. I'm going long today. She knows the difference between long and little. 
yet those blue eyes danced, and again she stared at the salt-crusted six-foot running leash. I told her the course I wanted to run. She knows our routes by name. You're sure, I asked. She stepped back into the kitchen and stretched, front paws out ahead while the body extended, teasing out the kinks. Okay, then, let's go. Until the following spring, she ran 20 miles every week, and then the weather got warm, and she quit again, for good. But in that final youth, one run stands out. A different Arctic front was pushing through. We began by heading toward the southeast, letting the bitter wind push us along. But then we had no choice but to turn and head for home. For some reason, I was using her 20-foot leash, probably to let her cavort in the snowdrifts. Roxy was as far ahead as possible, nose to the wind, and her leash pulled taut. We eventually reached the place where the path split two ways. To the left was home and warmth, while straight on meant adding miles in a numbing cold. When Roxy reached the intersection, she looked back at me, making a request with her eyes. I said, No, girl. I told her it was time to finish, but she trotted ahead anyway, stopping only when I stopped, and then she turned and stared stubbornly back at me, making absolutely certain that I understood what she wanted. I'm cold, I confessed. This isn't fun anymore. Are you sure? she asked, by lifting her paws and putting them down again. No, girl, we're heading in. And this is why that one run is my favorite. Just then, Roxy gave me a look. A disappointed, disgruntled glare. Those pale blue eyes spoke volumes. Behind them lived a vivid soul, passionate and secure. And to my dog, in ways that still make me bleed, I was such a fucking miserable disappointment. I really don't know what to do about Shelby. For now, we do nothing. When our daughter is elsewhere, my wife and I will have to talk about the possibilities, the practicalities, the kinds of choices we must work to avoid. The latest guesses claim that if the asteroid strikes, the hammer blow will come either to the western Atlantic or the east coast. The president promises that the government will do everything possible to help its citizens. A truthful statement if there ever was one, and full of ominous warnings. We probably won't run far from home, I'm thinking. Two years from now, California and New Zealand will be jammed with refugees. But most people will never think of coming to Nebraska. If it's a wet march, with ample snow cover and rain, the firestorm won't reach us. At least that's what these very preliminary computer models are saying. There won't be any crops that year, what with the sun choked out by airborne dust and acids. But by then, we'll have collected tons of canned goods and bottled water. Leslie's family farm seems like a suitable refuge, although I can't take comfort imagining myself as only a son-in-law surrounded by strong-willed souls who feud in the best of times. Chances are Shelby misses us. Vegas odds say that nothing changes on this little world. Not for now, at least. It is a warm, perfect evening in early May, and my dog needs her post-dinner walk. A baby gate blocks the basement door. If Roxy wanders downstairs, she won't have the strength to climb back up by herself. She waits patiently for me to move the gate, 
and clip her six-foot leash to her purple collar with the tags. The metal pinch collar sits on a hook, unnecessary now. The prednisone makes her hungry and patient, sweet and sleepy. I had a rather tearful discussion with the vet about dosages and the prognosis. For today, she gets half a pill in the morning, then half a pill at night. But if she acts uncomfortable, I'll bump it up. Whatever is needed, and don't worry about any long-term health effects. She has become an absolutely wonderful dog. Her mind remains sharp and clear. One morning, she acts a little confused about where we are going, but that's the lone exception to an exceptionally lucid life. When I give commands, she obeys, but there is very little need to tell her what to do. Every walk has something worth smelling. The weather has been perfect, and neither of us is in a hurry anymore. Halfway to the park, we come upon an elderly couple climbing out of an enormous sedan. They're in their 80s, maybe their 90s, and the frail little woman says to my dog, You're so beautiful, honey. I thank her for both of us and go on. The park lies to our right, beginning with a triangle of public ground where people bring their dogs throughout the day. Roxy does her business in one of the traditional places. I congratulate her on fine-looking poop. Then we continue walking, heading due north, and at some point it occurs to me that it would be fun to change things up. We could walk down into the pine trees standing beside the golf course, but since I'm not sure that she's strong enough, I say nothing. Not a hint about what I want to do. Yet when we reach our usual turnaround point, Roxy keeps on walking, not looking back at me as we pass the old maintenance building and start down a brief, steep slope. Coincidence, or did she read my mind? Whatever the reason, we move slowly into the pines, down where the long shadows make the grass cool and inviting, and I am crying again, thinking what a blessing this is, being conjured out of nothingness, and even when that nothingness reclaims us, there remains that unvanquished honor of having once, in some great way or another, having been alive. And there you go. Don't forget, copyright is Robert Reed. Do check out the links on the website to go over to Robert Reed's site. And again, Jim Campanella. Jim, how have you got the time, sir? Thank you very much. Please look out next week for an article by Jim Campanella as well. Fascinating, sir. Fascinating. And all of this show's articles and stories and last week's articles and stories will be, that was the John Varley one, will be discussed in this Saturday's roundtable with my good self, Fred, Diane and Grant. So please pop over on Saturday and have a listen to that. So thank you, everybody who's helped put the show together today. It is much appreciated. Do pop over to the main website and check out everything there. Also check out the shop now as slightly changed so you can actually go into the shop and just have a look at the back shows without having to kind of sign in or anything like that. Coming soon there too, the shop will be my <laughs> audiobook, my collection of short stories. I am just getting the cover back and it is rather stunning. So please do that. 
Again, this show is sponsored by Audible.com. If you want to receive a free audiobook, go to audiblepodcast.com slash sofa. Sign up and that book is yours. So I hope you've enjoyed everything today. Please do pop over the forums and voice your opinions there. If you like that sort of thing, that'll be fantastic. And do drop me an email explaining everything you're doing today. That would be great. I'd like to know where you're listening from, where you've come from. That's fantastic. Just nice to say hello. Keep an eye out as well for the new show, Starship Sanatorium, which will be hitting the airwaves pretty soon. You will get quite a number of these stories, stories, tales, my ramblings on this feed as a kind of tear staff where you do kind of pop over to the site and sign up. <laughs> anyway, let me know what you think of those ideas as well. That would be quite cool, you know, see how that goes. So until next week, I would just like to say... Good night from me. Will our heroes survive this terrible ordeal? Can they win through with their integrity unscathed? Can they escape without completely compromising their honor and artistic judgment? Tune in next week for the next exciting installment of Starship Sofa. Evacuation procedure initiated. Shuttle set for launch. Airlock will be opened in 3, 2, 1.